Portions of the following program may have been pre-recorded. No! Come on, rise and shine. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? It's going to be a great year. Turn all the lights on and kill the noise. The Biz 1440 presents the best two hours of economic news and commentary. Is it safe? It's the King Banyan Show. This is a man. Your source for penetrating economic insight, razor-sharp analysis, and unflinching universal thought. My mind is aglow with whirling, transient nodes of thought. Everything you need to maintain clarity and stay ahead of the economic curve. Now, here's Professor King Banyan. Welcome back, King Banyan Show, The Biz 1440. Second hour today, and if you missed the first hour, which uh, we'll call Hawks Flying at Jackson Hole, um, but they're Hawks that are cautious. They're Hawks that are data-dependent. But uh, nonetheless, um, news that drove uh, some interest rates higher, and I got myself to thinking about um, what are we, in fact, saying about the economy now what does that say i read to you in the last hour what it implied what the market reaction was in terms of the fed funds futures market that the that futures markets are now pricing in about a 50 50 chance that the fed is still going to raise rates one time at either the september or the no the september 20 or november 1st meetings um probably slightly leaning toward November and not September. Uh, But in my mind, um, everything he said makes it it quite possible, depending on the data this coming out this week, the last PCE deflator you'll have before the September 20 meeting comes on Thursday, the unemployment data, which will have some wage information for him, uh, for August will come out on Friday next week, going into the Labor Day weekend. And just to remind you, I will be here next weekend to talk all about that data and, and so forth. We'll, we'll, we'll skip a different, a lot of people take that, that weekend off. I'm going to skip a different weekend just because I want to make sure that we've covered all that. And then that will allow me to get prepped for, I'll take the weekend off before that September 20th meeting uh, to, um, to sort of rest, recuperate, and probably chase a white ball around a place up north. Um, details forthcoming. But the other thing that happened in this uh, in this this week that I wanted to talk about is that is that we have seen over the last few uh, weeks, July from July into into August, we started to see a a flattening of the yield curve, which I think of as being sort of a sign that maybe the recession comes at, is coming at hand here soon because that means that the rates on shorter instruments are beginning to decline. But what we've seen is that, that both the short and the long-term rate have been rising, but the 210 spread which at the end of July was 95 basis points, and that's typically a very, very negative indicator for economic growth, rose all the way to 0.63 uh, before getting to getting to uh, 
78 and 75 basis points the last two days. Um, remember, a more negative yield curve, which is what we had happen this week, is typically a, a sign of economic weakness, not economic strength. In a growing economy, long-run rates are usually are higher than short-run rates. If you go back and look for a period when rates were as negative as they are now, you have to go back to 2000. You have to go back 23 years. And even then, they were not this negative for this long. Very weird economy we're in. So I was fascinated last night when, um, when uh, uh, Wall Street Week uh, had on and I watched it. Yes, Larry Summers was on. He said nothing that, nothing that would surprise you. He just said, "Well, they're going to have to raise rates one more time." I think, I think Powell indicated that unless he gets some really negative data, they're leaning that way toward toward another raise before the end of the year, and the markets picked up on that. But, but the the uh, segment that caught my eye was Eric Cantor. Now. Those of you that follow politics and have for a while will recognize the name Eric Cantor. He was at one time uh, the majority leader in the House. I believe he was majority leader while Paul Ryan was the speaker. Um, he could go back to Boehner, but I actually think not. Anyway, Eric Cantor was the uh, was majority leader of the House. He lost a primary, um, actually to an economics professor uh, named David Bratt. Uh, so that was interesting, but Cantor uh, left left Washington, went to Wall Street, runs a, or is VP for a, uh, a merger and acquisition firm called Moellis. Doesn't really matter that much, but but is kind of a regular talking head on on particularly on Bloomberg, I find, which I find super interesting because people think of Bloomberg as maybe being very center, certainly the least uh, least conservative of the major. It's it's. I don't know. People want to say, I don't think CNBC actually is, I don't think CNBC is liberal as some of my friends do. Anyway, let me, uh, let me just say, I, when he shows up, I tend to listen because I know that he's got a, got a, a, a finger on the pulse in Wall Street and a finger on the pulse in DC. So he's pretty well, he's a pretty good guest to get on a show. And he was talking about the impact, he was asked about the impact of these higher rates on the business of his of the company he works with with which does again mergers and acquisitions and why he and why he thinks deal flow which collapsed on them in the first half of the year meaning there were very there was a big drop in mergers which interestingly happened at the same time there's been a lot of new business formation over the last 18 months people are creating new firms during this time Eric Cantor, this was on Wall Street Week last night. Let's play cut number eight. I don't think the federal government has a problem in borrowing right now. But at some point, you will reach a, a mark in which, you know, investors say, well, you know, is how much more are you going to pay me to keep borrowing like this? And that's the point you don't want to get to. Right. So we have a we have a country we have we have a world right here where we we can see that you've got you've got uh, you've got both. I want to look at I wanted to look at the uh, structure here. Nope, 
Um, I thought I had that here. The um, You have a structure right now where long rates, 10-year rates, are running, have gone from about three and a quarter to four and a quarter. If the long-run rate of interest is going to be 2%, a 10-year treasury paying four and a quarter is giving you a real yield of two and a quarter percent. Interestingly, if I look at indexed treasuries, and I'll, I, I will just say, in the last six months, I started to focus some of my own retirement investing on indexed treasury securities. Why? Because all of a sudden they're yielding you know, one and a half to two percent above inflation. Right? They're promising you, I'm going to give you one and a half to two percent above the inflation rate. And and I'm, this is not investment advice, but I'm just saying this is what I'm doing. Okay, I'm I'm spending some time looking at those and and have have actually I can say I've actually dipped a toe in the water, if you would. And 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 think of those being there, meaning real rates are going up. Real rates going up can happen for multiple reasons, but I want to focus on two. One of them I discussed in the last hour, and that's the question of productivity. If I'm going to invest in a in an asset and I need to have financing for that investment, I need to be sure that the return on the investment covers the amount I have to pay to my lenders and then generate okay the plus the amount that I have to pay to labor for the inputs uh, for the upkeep of the machines etc 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 and leaves me a, uh, at least a normal profit back that keeps me wanting to be the entrepreneur be the owner be the capitalist and not sell the business somebody else I have to have that assurance. When real rates are negative, it says in essence, there's more money to be made by sitting on the sidelines and, in, and investing in short-term securities and trying to hold on to that while versus investing in long-run securities that might pay you 4 5 6%. Right? If I'm driving by, I, and I do, I drive down uh, Division Street, which is the main east-west thoroughfare through St. Cloud. goes from one end of the city to the other. Lots of businesses on that, sh that street. Lots of banks on that street. All of them have signs up for certificates of deposit running anywhere from... Anywhere from uh, one to two years, anywhere from 2,500 minimum to a 10,000 minimum or to a 5,000 minimum, all offering me rates above 5%. Right? So we're at four and a quarter. We're at four and a quarter on the 10-year, on, on roughly. I think it went down to about 4.18 or 1.9 yesterday. That's what I was trying to check. Um, and... The banks are telling me you can have five percent. You can have. I saw five oh five. I saw five fifteen. As I drove by various, these were mostly credit unions doing this because they're the ones that are really hawking certificates of deposit right at this moment. And they are all 
running those those rates out there for a year or two. One of the reasons you might choose instead to invest is because productivity is higher. But there's one other potential explanation, and it's what Cantor said. Right at this moment, people are willing to loan the government money at four and a quarter percent for a 10 year period. I myself am saying, if you can guarantee me that I get 2% above inflation, I'm willing to lend the government some money. Okay. But there's other, there, but this could be what's raising rates. And I want to explain that. We'll have to do that after these messages. You're listening to the King Banyan show on the biz 1440. Welcome back, King Banyan Show, The Biz 1440. I was listening to um, uh, Dividend Cafe, which is David Bonson's uh, podcast that comes out Friday afternoons. I typically don't listen to it till after the show because I'm afraid I'm going to do it, but I knew when I looked at it, it's like, oh, God, that's what I want to talk about tomorrow. I probably should try to anticipate what he's going to say, and it turns out, unsurprisingly to me, we're not that far apart in the way we're thinking about this. Um, there, uh, the concern of of him and his uh, his advising group has been that um, has been that the Fed is just going to raise rates till they break something. I'm a little more generous in my view of the Fed than than Bonson is. Um, I don't think they're trying to break something. But I think their commitment to 2% inflation is strong. And I do think there's been, in this moment, a huge um, a huge miscalculation that they did that they think they can undo. The Fed believes, and I think, I think Powell in his heart believes, that it's his responsibility to pass to the next chair of the Federal Reserve a world in which 2% inflation is normal that people expect it and that you've actually and that you've realized it right and until we get to that point um until we get to that point there's no reason for us to go there's no reason for uh, the um there's no reason for the marketplace to no reason for uh the marketplace to believe you and until we get to that point, the Fed, I think, has to stay in this restrictive mode, which they now clearly have characterized. The Federal Reserve's Fed funds rate is actually not only above the five-year, excuse me, the 10-year bond rate. It is a, is a little bit above the two-year bond rate. It is above these rates on CDs. They are clearly, in, my, in anyone's estimation, they are clearly in the restrictive territory. This is why they say if I hold the rate here long enough, inflation should head back down to 2%. But there's a clock running on that in their heads, which is which is people are likely to ratchet up their expectations of inflation 
the longer the rate stays above 2%. So so they're, they're people in a hurry. They're trying to get to 2% fairly fast. That is why I've still held on to the, the recession forecast because I do believe they're going to raise rates until they're going to get to a recession. I don't think they're trying to bankrupt banks. I don't think they're trying to do any of that, but I don't think they mind banks tightening credit. But they are caught in this one this one place that I think they can't get themselves out of, which is they have a gov- they are, they are faced with a fiscal policymaker who has no discipline in has no discipline in in terms of balancing a budget. It has no discipline in the share of output. The, uh, the share of the economy which it wishes to directly control. The clip I chose not to play, but I want—I thought about it. I wanted to play. Was the was the clip from Wednesday night's GOP debate, the one that was on Fox, not the not the Tucker Trump uh, conversation, where uh, Nikki Haley former governor of South Carolina, former ambassador to the United Nations, puts the blame for additional deficit spending on both parties. It's not, I mean, she she explicitly says, it's us, it's, or, it's all of us. It's not one party or the other party, it's all of us. I can, you, you can, and, and I don't think you can contradict that using the data. If you look at the forecast of spending on the out years, the share the the share of the deficit in GDP stays at levels that historically we only had happen during deep recessions or during a financial crisis. It did not happen at other times. Did not ha- happen at other times. It is, it is, and. You can decide that that's okay, but the imp- the impact of that is you will get less investment because people will choose to hold their money in a CD at the nearby credit union and not put it into the stock market. They will choose not to put it into into a new business they're forming because the rate of return you need in order to accept the risk of investing in something that might go bust becomes higher. And that's what Eric Cantor was kind of getting at last night. I want to play both clips. I want to play them back to back here. Uh, so let me first play this again. We played this in the last segment. This is Eric Cantor, who's a vice president for a merger and acquisition firm called Moellis, on on um, on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg just last night. Cut number eight. I don't think the federal government has a problem in borrowing right now, but at some point you will reach a a mark in which you know investors say, well, you know, is how much more are you going to pay me to keep borrowing like this? And that's the point you don't want to get to. You don't want right because what happens then? Then real rates go up. We now have have a budget forecast for this government that says. What we will pay in servicing the debt, the interest payments we will make to service the debt will be greater than the amount we spend on national defense. Right? 
well, how much of how much of our taxes do we spend on national defense? And the answer is about twenty percent of our federal taxes go to that. Now we're going to have twenty percent of our of 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 what we send to the government just service the debt. And if rates have to go higher to control inflation, that's a that that becomes even more of an impediment, which is why some people will say to go back to what we were talking about in the first hour, the Fed's gonna stay on the is gonna stay on the break until it brings inflation to two percent. If the fiscal authority cannot get hold of its spending and reduce and reduce it back to uh, a, a better level, you cannot, you will not get inflation back down to 2%. This is what, for those of you that read John Cochran, the grumpy economist, or if you listen to him on the Goodfellows podcast from the Hoover Institution, um, which, I, which I enjoy immensely, um, to have John Cochran, Neil Ferguson, and H.R. McMaster on a single, in a single format uh, and get an hour of them once a week. That's that's just that's beautiful stuff. Um, I I love listening to it. But but we can't afford. You know, if you can't get hold of it, can't do that. And that's why I thought really that you know what when Haley said that, I'm like, okay, I don't know that's going to win you the presidential nomination. That is a truth that nobody seems to want to hear. Okay, everyone wants to deny that 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 that's that that's true that both sides have have spent like that, but it's not wrong. Let's continue with this. Is Eric Cantor again? Cut number nine. You know, there's a great sort of stat in history when you look at the interest bill for the federal government on an annual basis. When you look at it in 2000, it was 223 billion dollars. If you look at it in 2015. It was $223 billion. And you have to sort of ask yourself, well, why is that? Because, in fact, during that period of time, there was $9.7 trillion of additional debt incurred. How in the world are you paying the same amount of interest? It's because rates have been so low. And so, again, that's not sustainable. And that's when I say, again, uh, we're going to have to do something about this. Do something about this means... You, someone's going to have to speak up for fiscal discipline because the Federal Reserve cannot, cannot reduce inflation and sustainably keep it at 2%. And I realize that they, it, it did so in this period that we've called the Great Moderation. And we write books about a maestro or, or you know, the smartest man in the room or or something like that, where we praise um, bureaucrats. And frankly, you know, nobody elects the the governors or the chair of the central bank. They're appointed. They do not respond. They do not respond to an electoral check. We tend to think that's good, but it's only good for a while. And if it should turn out, Right. If it should turn out that after a period of time, interest rates are getting to six or seven percent because the Fed's still trying to get to two percent while the fiscal authority continues to spend at deficit levels of five and six percent of GDP. Guess who's going to win? It's not going to be it's not going to be the monetary authority. 
because the monetary authority is only the monetary authority through an act of Congress. It is only it the the Federal Reserve is an act of Congress. In other words, it's sort of like you know what your father said. You know, I brought you into this world, and I can sure as heck take you out of it, right? When you did something bad, um, you know, they give he, when he was giving you heck. He, sometimes it sometimes it involved a, a you know a, a threat. Do not be surprised. And this is what I find remarkable about this this particular moment in history. Normally when people threaten the Federal Reserve or threaten the monetary authority to say they're raising rates too much, they're harming the economy, which which typically really means only you're keeping me from spending too much money because you keep putting the economy in a recession because you're trying to restrain inflation. I need you to stop doing that. That's typically been an argument of the left. It is no longer. It is now the case that there are folks who do not want to hear what Eric Cantor said. Do not want to hear what Nikki Haley said on a stage on Wednesday. They don't want it. And yet that's the... And if they're not heard, and if their discipline is not brought forward, my concern is we will end up with a world where not just 2%, not just 3%, but you'll get to 4 5 6% inflation, okay? Rather than having deflation happen because the fiscal policy authority, and I need to talk about this. In fact, I better take a break here. Two roads that you might take, one which everyone's concerned about goes under the name of Japanification. There's a second road, and we've seen it in other countries besides Japan. And that that road is one of higher inflation. We'll be back after this. You're listening to The King Banyan Show on The Biz 1440. Welcome back, King Banyan Show. The Biz 1440. 651 Number call, questions, comments, uh, complaints. Because I'm, you know, I know I have an audience that has some strong political views, and I'm, I'm not making anybody happy this hour. And I don't intend to. I tend to make people a little uncomfortable. Um, and and my point here is 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 pretty simple. And it was summarized in an article I tweeted to you this morning, or X'd to you this morning. What do we say? What's the verb? X'd? I, I sent this out using X. Um, and it's a free link to a Bloomberg article, well, a, sort of a longer think piece that they did on, I'd say, Thursday, about the fact that the CBO forecast, the Congressional Budget Office forecast, says that the average deficit to GDP ratio over the next 10 years based on the current forecast is 6.1%. And yet when anyone talks about it, people are of two camps. Either, either it's the other guy's fault 
And then they don't do anything about it when they're there. They're like, you know, think about this, right? The Biden administration comes in. The Trump administration passed two emergency blowout spending bills in 2020. I will argue that the first one was probably an appropriate response to co- to the COVID shock. I think that I think that one got it roughly right. I know they did they waste a bunch of that money? Yeah, sure. Got it. Okay. When you try to put a whole lot of money out, you're tr- you're basically trying to force all of this money out in this really short period. The level of controls you have in place to make sure the money is not misused is never going to keep up with the amount of money you're trying to spend. So forget that. Had to do it. I thought the second bill, the one in December, was less necessary. But once you decide one side gets to make all these decisions and you decide in a polarized world, that was the Republican spending bill. And now we're going to have a change of government in January of 21. One shouldn't be surprised that all of a sudden they're like, well, we want our own. So my question now is what happens next? The, the, the one thing that two parties can agree on is let's spend more money. And when you have divided government, you think to yourself there'll be no spending. No, there will be spending. And they will spend as much as they can get away with. And they'll just figure out how to divvy it up between the, within, the, within a divided government. There is no evidence that I can think of. I think, I, I think I'm standing on pretty good, good knowledge here that there is no evidence that divided government spends less money. Right? Send me papers to the contrary. I'd be interested in reading them. I will try to pick them apart because I don't think I don't think they're. I I my sense of the evidence is it's not is it's not strong, but right. But so put that put that to put that there. That then means though that if we have six percent deficit spending, and so let's suppose next year we have an election, and in that election. The two parts that are not controlled by Republicans, the White House and the Senate, come under Republican control. Do we think the first act in 2025 will be sort of we have to get our fiscal house in control? I'm afraid not. I mean, so so when I say I'm making people unhappy, I am because I, I am because I'm predicting I'm asking for something that I'm pretty sure won't happen can't happen but the cost of that is higher interest rates which is going to continue to increase the cost of housing is going to right which has impact on the construction industry is going to increase the cost of research and development which could lead to new ideas that help change the growth of the economy and Maybe, just maybe, we've went through this period in the 1980s and 1990s through a combination of of good fortune, um, some remarkable technology that came on in terms of first the personal computer and then the internet, and then and then maybe 
maybe the refinement of mobile phones from the huge bricks. I love watching watching uh, Martin Sheen walk around with that huge. No, it's not Martin Sheen. Michael Douglas walking around with that huge brick held up to his ear in Wall Street. That was his mobile phone. Um, I love you know to the fact that I wa- I have I have a phone that slips in my shirt pocket, not and you can't see it, right? You know you know that's been a change. What is going to motivate? What is going to move those changes when interest rates that we that the private sector has to pay? are being raised higher because the government has this voracious appetite for debt, for non-productive debt. So I said in the last segment, I wanted to tell you about one of two things, right? One view of the world, which some folks, and I mentioned David Bonson's piece, you go back and read read him, and he's super interesting. I, I encourage you. He's got a... He's got a um, a podcast on National Review. I think it's called Capitalism. Uh, but uh, I I don't listen to that one. I listened to his uh, DC uh, Today and, and Dividend Cafe on the weekends. I His view is that what we're headed toward is Japanification. Our ability to use debt to grow the economy is becoming less and less, and that means that our economy slowed down. It's called Japanification because in the 80s, Japan raised their debt to a very high level. And and then their stock market collapsed in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And they've had 30 years of near no growth and slight deflation in, their, in, in, in prices. Now, I don't think the U.S. falls into Japanification, and I have, have different reasons for this. And, and although when when uh, last week last week he talked about the fact that China could go the road of Japan only delayed by 30 years, there's there's some talk about that. And I, I, I think there's something interesting about that hypothesis. I haven't thought through enough, but I see that as being possible. But my point being, there's another road and you see it in many places of Europe. Think about Greece 15 years ago. Think about. Think about places like like Germany back in the 20s, 1920s, not the 2020s, where you had an unsustainable level of government spending that eventually has to be paid for through a series of taxes. You raise tax rates, but eventually you hit a place where you've extracted as much revenue as you can by the taxation of income and sales and, produ- and production through the various broad bases you can find. You you get to a level where you simply can't extract anymore. And that, that leaves inflation as the residual. I'm concerned when I hear people have, when a Federal Reserve chair has to say, basically, stop talking to me about 3%. We are committed to 2% and that is all. It makes me realize that there are forces out there trying to say we want to spend more and we're going to use the inflation tax to pay for it. That's not necessarily MMT, although it's of a it's of a similar mind to modern monetary theory. But it's an old song. It long predates modern monetary theory. It is the song that was played by 
played by uh, uh, the Weimar government in Germany in the 1920s. It's the song that was played in many places after World War II. It's the song that's played in many countries in Africa. And every time there's someone that tries to step in, like like what's happening in Argentina, where you have someone who's basically saying, we're simply going to dollarize. We're going to get out of the business of of trying to use monetary policy to pay for spending in Argentina. Okay. You watch. I think I think he'll be swamped in the next – he's going to lose his election. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm very interested in that point. Let me take a break here because I, I – Bill, hang on the line. I'm going to talk to you right after these messages. You're listening to The King Banyan Show on The Biz 1440. Welcome back. King Banyan Show, The Biz 1440. One of my top ten favorite songs of all time right there. It's always a question of which version do you like the best. How many live versions of this have been made? <laughs> anyway, 651-289-4477, the number to call where we find Bill from Minnetonka uh, this morning on the King Banyan Show. How are you today, Bill? I'm doing well, and yourself? I'm great, thank you, sir. I called in because I saw an article this morning uh, out of Bloomberg saying that the wonderful city of Minneapolis had uh, beaten inflation with their policy towards affordable housing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen this. I've seen this story, Bill. Yeah, uh, by uh, Niquette. Mark Niquette is yeah. one of the names on the uh, lead. I, and I, how so did you get away me, with this? I, I I think because um, I think actually trying to suss all of the various trends in that particular data. So I so let me start from here. The Bureau of Labor Statistics actually will publish for about forty different cities a city CPI. And what's interesting about this is you can go get separate data on Minneapolis versus St. Paul. And the Minneapolis data would say Minneapolis is doing a much better job of providing housing and the change in housing prices versus St. Paul. But still, you will find that if you wanted to build the house you want to put in the city of Minneapolis, if you wanted to build that, let's say, over the river in Hudson, Wisconsin, it's going to cost you 40 to 50 k more <laughs> to put it in Minneapolis. Oh, absolutely. You know, and you can even get that differential not building in downtown Minneapolis where land prices are going to be extremely high, but you can get a differential that's almost that much if you were building it in Anoka, right? So, so, so the question here is the cost of living can be much higher here, but the rate at which that cost of living is changing actually according to the BLS and the way they do the data, it looks like we're growing less, our, our, our prices are growing less, but they're starting from a very high level. 
it says nothing about the cost of living between between say Minneapolis and St. Cloud, which I you know obviously I live here, I know it well, and I know a lot of my young my students who are graduating will come back to me and say, "My God, do you know what's happened to the rents down in down in Minneapolis?" I say, "Yeah." But and I and I could say to them, well, but they've grown five percent less than the rents over in in St. Paul. That won't matter, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. And, and that won't matter at all. A thousand dollars a month. It's uh, only nine seventy five in Minneapolis. You know, correct. And, and and how they miss completely. People don't want to live in Minneapolis. You, you can imagine well, what the for that is. Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 Bill, I think this is an interesting point. We all believe that the lower cost of living in Minneapolis is because of you know if it let's assume let's take let's assume that the that the story is true. It costs less to live in Minneapolis than say um, some other place. Make it um, Seattle or Baltimore, something like that. Um, Actually, Baltimore is the one town that's uh, lower than Minneapolis. Right. So let's take let's take that. Okay. Yep. Here's the here's a here's here's the thought experiment to have. Does that difference that lower price represent the fact that there's more supply of housing, or more supply of goods and services, or could it reflect lower demand for those places because Precisely. they are tougher places to live in, and so no one so when people don't want to live there. The way a land, the way a uh, uh, an apartment owner moves that that property is by lowering the price. Precisely. Right. So so there is this 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 line that uh, uh, Scott Sumner, uh, emeritus professor from Brand uh, from uh, Brandeis, uses all the time. Never reason from a price change. Also, never reason from a from a from a inflation rate. Or cost of living difference. It might be because of great government policies in Minneapolis, but it could be people just don't want to live there, and you got to cut the price in order to sell to sell or rent your property. Right. It, it just it, floored me. One of the other pieces of information that they threw into this article was they brought back the misery rate. You, you and I remember that from uh, the Reagan years. Yep. Uh, and. Uh, Minneapolis is second from the bottom, second lowest. As I mentioned, Baltimore is lowest. And then it's Washington, Houston, Boston, Chicago, St. Louis. I, I can right. honestly believe San Francisco just simply with all that's going on there. Right, but right. If you're not incorporating that into your real world situation, simply looking at the fact that they took the, as they mentioned here in the article, the old uh, Ford plant over uh, on the uh, east side of the river in St. Paul, and I've turned that into, quote-unquote, affordable housing. Well, that's great, but you also don't have the 1,500 jobs that used to be there either. Correct. And these that's all right. play a part. That's right. Yeah. Hey, Bill, I got I to gotta run, but thank you for the call. I really appreciate I really appreciate it very much. Um because we're going to, we're coming up to the end of the show, so I got to I got to head out here. But but I want to I want to make this one last point ab- about what's hap- what happens in data like this. What, if we're right, 
that inflation is going to be higher for the for the foreseeable future, right? That is that is and that that is going to be something that comes from the fiscal authority. You will go back to the line to the land of the early 1980s. You go back to that Reagan period, where the only way you get rid of the inflation in the long run will be a, a recession, the likes of which we haven't seen in quite some time, and that. That's something that we should be avoiding by being more judicious in how we spend uh, spend money now. I wish I could have spent more time, but I really like that call, Bill. Thank you for calling with that idea. Thank you, Spencer, for your thoughts as well. Job Saturday next week. We'll see you here on the King Banyan Show on The Biz 1440.